Psalm 73. <laughs> Truly, God is a good is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out of their fatness. Through their through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to him, to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, the always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hand in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when, I, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in, dis- in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by, uh, utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when I, when I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and the and the portion and my portion forever. For behold, those are those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thanks, Hudson. Um, well, hey, good to be with you. My name is Nate. If I haven't met you yet, uh, you saw me up here earlier. Get up at the wrong time. So anyway. Um, Great to be with you. Um, kids, uh, first Sunday, kids are in the service, and I love that. And so if you're young at heart, you can answer this too. But do you think about this moment. Do you remember the first time you saw one of those pictures that you saw what was on the inside of your body? Do you remember that? I remember that, and I was like in, I was like, like mesmerized, but also grossed out. I knew that the medical profession was not for me right? Um, well, so we're in this series called Come to Him, and we're looking really at the Psalms and how we are to pray our emotions. And John Calvin, this guy who was 500 years ago, when he was talking about the book of Psalms, this 150 Psalms in the middle of the Bible, he said this, that, that they, were the, they were the human, uh, excuse me, the anatomy of the soul, 
And what, what Kelvin was saying is that the Psalms, you'll find every emotion and every experience that we face in life. It's all found in the Psalms. You'll see joy and despair and anxiety. And today we'll look at envy and anger. And the Psalms, they show us how to pray in the midst of those emotions. And this is really helpful for a, a couple reasons. One is, oftentimes, um, some of us, we suppress our emotions. We ignore them. We kind of push them down. And the problem with that is it's a little bit like when you're driving your car like I was on Thursday afternoon or my wife was, and we're getting, going to the repair shop and the overheating sign is coming on the car and we're barely making it there because it's blinking, it's flashing, right? You can't ignore the lights on your dashboard. If the check engine light's on, you got to get that looked at because if you don't, you know there'll be more problems down the road, right? And so you can't suppress your emotions. But also the Psalms, they show us that you can't enthrone the emotions. You can't let your emotions rule you. Um, there's, uh, there's a great example we'll see at the end of Psalm 73. But the psalmist says that, I was, that he was bitter towards God. And he doesn't stay there. But nevertheless, he's not ruled by it. In other words, the Psalms don't suppress emotions. They don't enthrone emotions. But they actually direct us to come to him in, pray, in prayer. Because God hears and he cares. And today, Psalm 73, uh, we look at this emotion of envy. Of envy. In verse 3, the, the psalmist says, I was envious, envious. And Frederick Buechner, uh, talking about what envy is, wrote this a while ago. He said this, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. Oh, that's, that's so good. And yet so awful, right? Uh, a great example of this, John um, Gilgit, this, this British actor, uh, he, he writes in his autobiography that, that when Sir Lawrence of Olivia played Hamlet in 1948 and the critics raved, he wrote, I wept. Envy is simply this, it's I want that life, whatever it is. And, you know, the psalm that was just read, in verses 4 to 9, we see this elaborate description of the psalmist being envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And we see these really evocative, beautiful poetry about they're rich, and they're powerful, and they're beautiful, and he wants it. And so Psalm 73 shows us two things we're going to see today about envy. We're going to see the power of envy, and then secondly, we're going to see the healing of envy. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll get in. Father, I just pray this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let's begin with the power of envy. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. The psalmist writes this, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was 
envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Notice the description. Um, Envy is subtle and it's sneaky. That's one of its powers. Uh, The description in verses 2 and 3, it's it's a description of almost stumbling and slipping. And you know, it's like that when you're walking on a sidewalk and you get to the next section, right? And it just is like a quarter inch difference, but you don't lift your foot up far enough and you stumble. Or it's like usually this time of year when it's not like 65 degrees and sunny, but it's actually icy and slippery, right? You're walking and you just... Your feet go out from underneath you. Envy is powerful because it's subtle. You you actually, oftentimes, you don't realize it's happening when it's happening. And if you don't, what happens is it takes you to places you don't want to go. But also, you know, one of the things, um, there's this author, Tilly DeLahey, he's really helpful She tells about the story of when she was younger, seen in the back of a coffee shop and her two younger sisters getting up to perform. And it was the first time she'd ever heard them together. And she herself was a musician. And they get up there, the lights are on them. And her two sisters were incredible in their harmonies. Just incredible. And she notes that she began to cry in the back of the coffee shop. And she writes this, whatever sisterly joy or swell of exuberance that good art produces, she writes, there was envy with it. She says, I could hardly bear the sting of glory I was seeing. Glory can be magnetic, but glory, especially if it's a glory you wanted for yourself, can also be terrible. And one of the things she writes about in this book is how that moment took that relationship with her sisters and it affected it seriously for years because envy snuck in. But the power of envy is not only that it's sneaky and subtle, but also that it distorts. It distorts how we see the world. Uh, Think with me about the last time you were at a carnival and you stood in front of a carnival mirror, right? You know, the mirrors look, that, that make you look really tall and skinny or really short and fat. Um, it distorts. You know when you look at it that that's not you, right? But what envy does, it, it puts a lens over our eyes, and it distorts how we see ourselves. It distorts how we see others. And it also distorts how we see God. So, so look with me at verse 5 for a moment. Describing those he's envious of, the the, the wicked who are prosperous, he says this, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And then just flip with me for a moment to verse 14, describing the psalmist's condition. He says, all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. One pastor put it this way, that envy makes us look at everybody else's life through an Instagram filter, right? 
But then when we look at our own lives, it's like, and I think I've done this once, but you look at the, the mirror, the, the makeup mirror that magnifies your face, right? And all you can see is the blemishes. And some of us, to be honest, one of the reasons why we're so unsatisfied with our lives is because the root of it is envy. We, we look at another person's spouse or family or their beauty, their vocational trajectory, their athleticism, their influence, or we simply scroll through our social media feed and we spend hours looking at everyone else's perfect lives. And because of that distortion, you're unable to experience any joy or any gratitude in your own life. So it distorts our view of others, but it also distorts our view of ourselves. So look at verse 13. The psalmist says this, All in vain... Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? Uh, envy stirs up in us entitlement. Envy enthrones the self. Uh, you know, there's this film, Amadeus, it's quite an old film. It's not historical, it has real characters, but it, it depicts the composer Salieri who's bitter at God for giving Mozart the superior gifts. And the, the, the film depicts Salieri as a chaste man who honors God, while Mozart is this carouser. And Salieri can't take it. At one point, he says, all I wanted was to sing to God. And in the end, Salieri loses his faith in God because of the talent of Mozart, who doesn't appreciate the gifts or honor the one who's given him the gifts. And envy, it stirs up entitlement in our lives. We, we say things like, how come I can't get that kind of life? How come I'm stuck where I am? After all, I deserve better than them. We live thinking and believing that God owes us, that we deserve a better life, and that he's been unfair. But the reason why this is a distortion is because we forget, we forget the doctrine in Scripture that before God, the only thing we merit, the only thing we rightly deserve because of sin is judgment. We have, as one author's put it, we've, we've revolted against God, we've dethroned him, and we've enthroned ourselves. And that's what envy does, distorts our view of ourself. But it also distorts our view of God. Stay with me in verse 13. Let me read it again. Because notice what's happening here in relationship to God. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. In other words, when you relate to God through eyes of envy, God is merely a Coke machine. He's something that gives you stuff. In essence, the psalmist is saying, I've been good. I've been living a good moral life, therefore, you owe me. Ironically, the psalmist has been living just like the arrogant and the wicked in this passage. 
Because think about this way. The, the arrogant and the wicked who don't pay attention to God, they in essence say this, I want control of my life. I don't want God in charge. I'm going to live how I want to live. But the religious moralist person's passage, who's struggling with envy, what is he doing? He's saying, God, I'm in control of my life. If I'm good, you owe me. God becomes, if, if I do X, then you need to give me this. Do you see the power of envy? Do you see how it distorts our view of ourselves, our view of others, our view of God? It's subtle and it's sneaky. It robs you of joy and gratitude. So what do we do with it? Well, this passage shows us how to heal it, how we can be healed. And there's two things it says. You've got to take your envy out, and you've got to take your envy up. First out, the road to healing for envy in Psalm 73 begins with confession. You know, in verse 3, he writes, I was envious, I was envious of the arrogant. He brings it into the light. The first 15 verses are just this poetic confession of where the psalmist is. And in verse 15, it's actually one of those moments where it's almost like the psalmist catches himself. He's almost shocked at where he's gone. Because in verse 15, he says this. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's almost like he's putting his hand over his mouth going, I can't believe how far I've gone. And to be honest, um, envy is a really hard thing to confess. Like it's harder than anxiety or anger. Anxiety and anger are more acceptable, socially acceptable emotions that maybe have gone awry, but envy is different. And here's, here's why. Envy is, um, as one author notes, it begins in a negative feeling of inferiority. And then it progresses into nasty feelings of resentment. And then it stagnates in a stewing, frothy mess of petty or belligerent offspring sins. Did you just catch that? It, it, it begins with noting that you're, you feel inferior. No one likes to feel that way. And then it transgresses to, next to feeling resentment towards others. It feels petty. And yet what's really remarkable in the Psalm 73 is, think for a moment, this is like in the middle of this book, of this prayer book. And yet notice what is happening. The, the psalmist is saying this, I am envious of the rich, powerful, and beautiful who don't love God. He's saying things like, God, you're holding out on me. I've been good. Give me what I deserve. It's one of those things that you would feel awkward telling a friend to cross over table over coffee, right? And yet, look, it's right in the middle of the Psalms. In other words, Psalm 73 is giving us space, in a sense, to just be open and honest with where we are. There is, the road to healing begins there. 
It is to, to confess and bring it into the light and not let it stay in the recesses of your heart. But it's to pray to God. But secondly, you've got to take your envy up. And, and look with me at verse 17. The psalmist writes, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. This is, this is really the turn of the entire psalm. This is where things begin to shift for the one who's praying. And think about this for a moment. As a psalmist is returning to the sanctuary, he's going to a place in which he's going to encounter God and worship. In other words, what we have to do with our envy is put ourselves in space to have our hearts recalibrated by encountering God through worship. You know, um, think with me for a moment. When you go to the eye doctor and they put the alien-looking-like machine on you, you know, and they say good, better, or the same, that's what worship does. It, it recalibrates your heart. It, it takes the distortion about yourself, about others, about God, and it recalibrates it. It puts things in the right perspective. You see clearly. And, and look at what happens, because in verse 21 to 22, notice what the psalmist begins to see as he's in worship. It says this, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The psalmist says, I was angry towards you, God. I was nasty towards you. I was like a brute beast. That's not a compliment, okay? I was really hard-hearted towards you. And so the psalmist is just being honest. It's, and in worship, it removes this callous distortion that we are entitled to a certain kind of life. We're humbled. The psalmist has actually seen himself for who he is, and actually he's beginning to see himself as no better than the arrogant and the wicked. But it also recalibrates our view of God, because look at verses 23 and 24. He writes this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. The psalmist says, Even though this is how I've been to you, you have not let me go. You have held on when I wanted to go the other direction. It's almost like there's a moment at which Remember at the beginning, he said, I almost slipped. And it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, you held on when I almost slipped. You wouldn't let me go all the way down. And the psalmist, notice this, he is, this is an experience of grace. He knows, because of the state of his heart, he doesn't deserve to be treated by God this way. But nevertheless, God's faithful and has held him. The psalmist experienced what J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, this, that there is this tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. 
so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me and quench his determination to bless me. You know, the reason why a brute beast can receive grace, people like us can receive grace, is because of where the Psalms all point to. That's where we're headed this Lenten season when we get to Good Friday and we get to Easter. Where are we headed? We're headed to the moment where what happens? God in the flesh comes. He says, I'm not going to let you go. And the way that's going to happen is I'm going to die for you, for your sins, so you, so you can return to me, so you can know my love and be forgiven and be cleansed from it. See, that happens through worship when you see that kind of love. And it leads to this crescendo statement in Psalm 73. Look at verses 25 and 26. The psalmist says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice what happens. This is a progression. Notice where the psalmist started and notice where it ends. He started with confession, taking his envy out. He kept on going, taking his envy up. And where does it lead? It leads to this ultimate joy and contentment in God. Rather than saying, I want that life, the psalmist is content in having God himself. One of the things about envy is it's a little bit of a mirror. If you remember in the, the Harry Potter series, um, there's the mirror of Irised, which is desire backwards. And whenever anybody looked in the mirror, it showed the deepest, most desperate desires of our hearts. You know, so when Harry showed up, he saw his parents next to him, right? That's what he wanted. It's his deepest heart. But when you take your envy out and you take it up, it puts the deepest desire of your heart back the way it was created to live, with God at the center. In 1662, the famous 17th century scientist Blaise Pascal died. And um, as some of his servants were going through his belongings, um, one of the servants found a small piece of parchment that was sewn in his coat. And at the top of the paper, Pascal had drawn a cross, and underneath it were these words. In the year of the Lord, 1654, Monday, November 23rd, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12, and then there was this word, fire. And then he wrote, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers nor of the scholars, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and the God, thy God shall be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God, joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, I have fallen away. I have fled from him, denied him, crucified him. May I not fall away forever. Renunciation, total and sweet. 
I will not forget thy word. He had a two-hour experience of worship. And it changed him so much that he stored it in the line of his coat for eight years, closest to his heart. Brothers and sisters, I share this not as something that we seek in experience, but to show that this is what happens when you encounter God. He transforms your heart. He takes it, he takes your envy, and he replaces it with a deep love for him, a deep contentment for him. And friends, it's not because you've pursued him. It's because he has pursued you in the person and work of Jesus. And to the degree that you know that, to the degree that you experience that, the power of envy will be dislodged and your heart will be healed and you will treasure what you and I were made to treasure, which is God himself. Let's pray. Almighty God, cleanse our hearts. Remove the envy, the wanting of that life, whatever that life is. Replace it with a joyful, centered, satisfied heart in you. Heal us. Restore us. That we may say as the psalmist does, you are the strength of our hearts and you are our portion forever. Amen.